So thank you so much. If you have Sojourn Online, community groups, uh, you'll find all of our groups and an opportunity to connect. So we are in a season called Lent. This is uh, maybe a newer reality for some of you. For others, you've been doing this since the But this is a season, Christian calendar, where we slow down, we remember our mortality, remember we are dust, and to dust we shall return. We also remember our limitations as humans. Uh, and so for us, during 2021 Lent, we are going through the passion narrative of Matthew 26 through 28. And we're spending some time just slowing down and remembering that there was an event that occurred 2,000 years ago that changed the course of human history. And we just want to behold it. We want to consider it together. And so we started last week in Matthew 26, considered Mary and her generosity and Judas and his greed. And this week, we're going to look at the Last Supper or the final meal that Jesus had with his disciples. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about the Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci uh, painted uh, this, should be up on the screen. Um, you might be familiar with that. That's actually not what it looks like, um, but, you know, whatever. Uh, it was much more of a Roman style, uh, so they're, they're not sitting down like Westerners. They're probably kneeling or on their butts, and they're sitting in a circle, uh, but this is good for, you can't really do that. Uh, in a painting, and so that's why he did that. And so your minds might go there, maybe post-2020 coming out of COVID. Maybe you wonder if it was more like a Zoom call, so the next photo here. Maybe you think it looks like this. Uh, again, it's not. It's not like either of those. Uh, it's actually, I was hoping somebody would laugh at that. I thought it was really funny. Um, <laughs> glad it landed well. Um, but this, this meal is profound, and it enhances our hope in the cross. And I want to consider the significance of this Last Supper with you. So I got two scenes we're going to look at. We're going to spend most of our time in the Last Supper, and then we're going to spend our last little bit around uh, Peter's uh, denial of Jesus. And so we're going to have four points as we walk through that for those note takers. Um, Matthew 26, we're going to be in verse 17. First point I have for you is that there's a, I want to give a little historical context of the Passover. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 17 now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you uh, to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So we'll pause there. A couple things happening here. We're not entering into the Passover, we can sense, again, a reminder of Jesus' authority. He knows exactly what to do, and so he says, go to this person. You're going to find that they're actually preparing the Passover for you. Maybe some of you got a little anxious when you could imagine the idea of someone wanting to have a feast at your house that you weren't ready for. That, the context was a bit different back then. A lot more hospitality was occurring then than now. It's just the context. And so we have this pretty significant historical moment happening that us Westerners might not understand the implications of. And so we can miss what's happening here. This is so profound as we're leading up to the cross. Uh, the Passover narrative is found in the second book of the Bible. So you have Genesis and then you have Exodus. And so in Exodus, we have this story of these people of God. Their name, they're, they're the Israelites. And they've been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. This 
tyrannical ruler Pharaoh is ruling over these people. And generation after generation, these uh, Israelites are enslaved to these Egyptians. And so we find as the story progresses that God raises up Moses to go before Pharaoh. Let my people go, he says. And he says it multiple times. And every time it doesn't happen and Pharaoh rejects, there are plagues that are poured out upon Egypt. And it culminates to this 10th plague. And in this 10th plague, God tells Moses that every firstborn son is going to die. Whether they're Egyptian or Israelites, every firstborn son is going to die. The only remedy for all of the families to escape this is to put their trust in God's means of of safety, which would be to kill a lamb, allow that blood to be poured out, and to place that blood over the doorpost. And if you did that, if you trusted in God's provision and God's provision alone, you would be rescued from this. And so it takes place, it happens, and we read Exodus 12, uh, starting in verse 12, it says this. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this happens. That night takes place. Pharaoh's son dies. He wakes up wailing in light of that, and that was the plague that was the kicker that caused him to say, leave. And so the Israelites left, and they had a Passover feast to remember God's faithfulness and provision from that night. So that was the Passover. They celebrated every year, even to this day, uh, Jews gather together and remember this event. It was the blood of that slain lamb that caused redemption to take place. In Exodus 12, when that story is laid out, six references to blood take place. And Tim Keller, he speaks to this a bit more. He says, the only way for your family to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Namely, you had to slay a lamb and put the blood on the doors as a sign of your faith in God. In every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. When justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute, under the blood of the lamb. If you did not accept the shelter, then death passed over you and you were saved. That's why it is called Passover. You were saved only on the basis of faith and the substitute sacrifice. So this Passover meal was a reminder of that event. And Jesus, he sat with his disciples that night. I'm going to go rabbit trail for a second. Some of you aren't going to care about this, but for those that might, there's a debate on whether this meal actually took place on Passover or not, scholarly. And so again, another world here, but some of you care about this. Uh, and long story short, the dinner actually took place the night before the Passover. And, and that can bring some confusion. And, and the, when you read it, because in John's gospel, it says things a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, but just suffice it to say the Western culture has a view of day from sunup to sundown, and Jews have their view of day from sundown to sundown. So this meal was eaten the night, and this matters, this meal, hopefully all of this matters, um, but this part definitely matters, um, this meal was eaten the night before the Passover. Because of that, there was no lamb on the table. 
because the lambs for the Passover were slaughtered the day of Passover. So because they ate the night before, there were no lambs to be slaughtered. Therefore, there was no lamb on the, on the table, on the spread that night that Jesus ate with his disciples. So again, there's a historical side to Passover. Second point, understanding why Jesus didn't serve lamb at his supper. So Matthew 16, 19 through 20, it says this. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table, again, Roman style, sitting on the floor with the twelve. And then they begin to partake. And I'm, I'm going to bypass the betrayal portion because we talked about that last week. Um, but you, you can't just eat the meal. There was like a very meticulous way. Maybe your Christmas is different. You just kind of throw it together. But that's not like Passover. There was a very specific, meticulous way, a pattern by which you had this meal. And so they came together and they organized the Passover. You have herbs. You have certain foods that you have to have at this meal to remember what took place on this Passover night. And so the meal included four parts that the presider or the host would uh, use. They would hold a glass of wine and they would uh, remember a specific aspect of the Passover. And this was happening in this meal this night. Four cups of wine pointed to the four promises of God that are found in Exodus chapter 6. And so I'd love to read this to you. If we can throw that up on the screen, Exodus 6. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. It goes on to say, And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of justice, judgment. I will take you uh, to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so they remembered this promise that God made to the Israelites that this would happen. So every part in the meal, they would raise a glass of wine and they would remember that we were to be rescued from Egypt, that we were to be freed from slavery, that we would be redeemed by God's divine power and renewed into relationship with God. And so the presider would bless the food and the elements and explain how these symbols were so important for the deliverance of his people. So for example, they would take the bread every Passover meal. They would take the bread and they would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate at the wilderness. So they would take the bread, they would remember the affliction of their forefathers. So Jesus, again, the presider of the Passover feast, and, and Matthew recounts what happens when the third glass is raised. And Jesus goes off script from tradition, and he says this in verse 26 of chapter 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Again, this was normal. This is the third act of four in the Passover meal. He took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I will not, I, t I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So he changes gears. Instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction of our forefathers, he changes scripts and he says, this is my body, 
Jesus is saying, this is the, the bread, not of the affliction of our forefathers. This is, the, this is my affliction. This is my suffering. I'm going to bring about a greater exodus than what happened over Passover. I'm going to bring about a greater deliverance and a greater exodus, and it's going to happen this evening. See, what is happening isn't a symbol of the past. Jesus is pointing forward to what's about to take place in this meal. So Jesus, he blessed the food. Every Passover meal had bread, and every Passover meal had wine that was blessed. What is interesting is that in every account of the Gospels, there's no reference to a lamb at the meal. And again, that's the main event when it comes to the meal. The lamb was key. I mean, how do you celebrate Passover without a lamb? That was the thing that caused them to, uh, the provision of God to bring forth this rescue. Maybe his dudes just missed the instructions. Maybe someone was getting a little too happy in preparation. They just kind of nibbled a lot. You know, you have those family members that just keep grabbing the food on Thanksgiving. And so maybe we had some of those at the Passover. No, that's not the case. Hear me. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the lamb and Jesus was the main course. In John 1 29, one of the first references of Jesus, it says, uh, it says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And to get us Westerners, we're not used to these woolly creatures, and so we don't really understand why they would say this, but he's referencing to this Passover, that a lamb would be slain. Behold, the lamb of God, Jesus, was the lamb at the table. What Jesus is declaring is that all of the earlier sacrifices of the lamb were referencing and pointing in the shadow of himself. Just as the first Passover was observed the night before God rescued and delivered his people out of Egypt. So this Passover was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the death of his son. So why didn't the lamb exist at the table? Because Jesus was the lamb who was to be slain for the sins of of the world. And again, this, this is all building up. As we see, we can kind of fly through this and we can miss the significant implications of why this meal matters uh, before the crucifixion. Which leads to the third, third point. And this is much more practical. It says, In this moment, he institutes the Lord's Supper. So Jesus lays out a symbolic feast that points to the coming of his kingdom. And I want to look at this, and uh, Paul speaks to this. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 23, he talks about the Lord's Supper. This is what we do every week. The, the little cracker that used to taste good when we were at LCI, and not anymore. And the juice that maybe you'd like more now than you did at LCI, if we can be honest. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is the context. In, Math, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, it says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not remembrance of what happened during the Exodus, in remembrance of me. In the same way also, 
He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as I eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So he admonishes, he reminds the people of what we do this for, to remember Jesus. And he says, hold up though. Don't just do this in a casual manner. Like examine yourself every time you take this meal. And so church family, I want to remind us to not approach these moments casually. Every time we gather and we partake, we always begin with confession. We have space to examine ourselves. See if there's any way that's grievous before God and and turn from that and turn towards Christ again. This is a serious admonition that Paul gives to us that I remind myself and us of. Don't partake in in an unworthy manner. And brief implications of the Lord's Supper for us. Why we do it is an outward reminder of what Christ has done for us. Just like this ring on my finger is an outward reference of my covenant to my wife. When we partake in the the bread and the juice, the body and the blood, we remember outwardly of what Christ has done for us in remembrance of him. So who partakes in this? All who have trusted in God's provision. This is, again, we say this often, but this is a moment where we partake in this as ones who have been redeemed. And so we don't advise you to partake of it if that is not you. If you are searching and and considering Christianity as a way of life, we celebrate you being here. But this is specifically for those who put their trust in the provision of God. Jesus told his followers to partake and to remember him. And so we partake to remember his story. The story that we've been grafted into, to remember his forgiveness, to remember to stay strong until he comes again. So we land here. This is not actually the blood and the body of our Lord, but this is a sacred meal that reminds us of such. It's an opportunity to repent, to turn, to preach our brokenness, to preach God's love for us. It's an opportunity to celebrate. You know, James Thornton, who hasn't, uh, him and his wife have uh, been home because of COVID, but I remember him saying over and over again that when he partook of the communion elements, it was like he was a kid in a candy store because it was a reminder of the celebration and the moment that God has redeemed me. And it's a moment that we celebrate together. It's a moment where you can pray for your family, pray with your family. It's a moment that we can do that together. It's an opportunity to receive afresh from the Spirit. So three things I'd like to say to parents specifically. Um, First, parents, you can use the communion space, the communion elements to talk to your kids about the gospel. Talk to your kids about why we do this every week. To talk to our, our kids about why you do this. Because they care less about what the church does and more about what you do. And so why do you partake? Talk to your kids about that. Secondly, um, we, we at 
advise from adults to children that uh, only for those who are followers of Jesus to partake in the elements. And so ultimately, we allow that discernment to be on you. And so secondly, we want you to be intentional with your children, to see where they are with faith. And if they aren't interested, that's totally fine. Continue to love them, continue to invest into them, but we would advise that they don't partake in the Lord's Supper. You know, on a practical level, we our encouragement is uh, kind of first grade is the standard. You know, but we land on discernment. If your kid's in kindergarten and they, you know, have this vibrant, simple faith in Jesus, and that's totally fine. Discernment's on you, but that's kind of our encouragement to allow first grade to kind of be a, a standard of consideration where their faith is. And if you need help in journeying through or need resources, man, Kendra and Katie are here, and they would love to assist you as, as a part of our children's team. So again, the third point, less fun, but that's the reality when it comes to the institution of the Lord's Supper and kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, which leads to the last point, which is this. Jesus' response to Peter's denial. So again, we've had this moment, this Lord's Supper is a reminder of the Passover. We see that there's no lambs there, and it's pointing to Jesus as the greater lamb to bring forth the greater deliverance of the greater bondage that we have. We see the institution that takes place in the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward from that meal. Some things are going to happen we're going to talk about next week. Um, but we're going to get into the latter part of Peter's denial. It ties together for us. And so in Matthew, I'm going to read a little bit to us. Matthew 26, starting in verse 30, it says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. And the story fast forwards. Jesus is now put on trial. He is now uh, taken before uh, he's now arrested and, and, and such things we'll get into next week and put on trial. And then at the very end of Matthew 26, it says this. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Again, all this is happening. Arrest has taken place. Jesus has now been slapped multiple times. He's now been put on trial before the religious leaders. And Peter's watching all of this. You can imagine his life unraveling before his eyes. And in verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what, you're talk, what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, or he swore, I do not know this man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So we have three predictions that are in the first part of what I read. Jesus says, you guys are all going to fall away. He says, secondly, that 
Um, after I'm raised up, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And then lastly, he says, uh, there's going to be a rooster that's going to crow after you deny me three times. So three predictions. You can, again, I want to continue to push us to this reality. Jesus is fully in control of these moments. He's not this poor, weak savior. He is in control of every moment that's taking place. He knows exactly what's going to transpire before him. And so he says, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to desert me, and you're going to deny me. Peter says, I would never, but he does. And so two notes about this. First, Jesus offers all of his disciples, ones who will soon desert and deny him, the bread and the cup. He knew they would reject him, and yet he laid this meal out before them as their lamb and offered it to them. So what does this mean? He wasn't surprised by their weakness, and he's not surprised by our weaknesses. Jesus offers the meal to an imperfect group of followers whom we identify with. This meal isn't a declaration of our arrival, but this meal that we partake in is a declaration of our utter need for a Savior. We remember that there. And then secondly, we see within this picture of of Peter's denial that Jesus' handling of Peter is deeply, deeply healing. So again, we have this moment. Jesus says he's going to deny him. Peter says there's no way. And then we have this space, and we have the denial take place. And so the things that occur, Jesus is put on trial. Jesus' life is put in the balance. Jesus is deeply distressed to the point of death. We're going to talk about this more next week. And Luke's gospel says that he begins to sweat blood. He's in such stress. He goes to the point of saying, uh, Father, take this cup from me. He's pleading. He sees the wrath of God that's about to be placed upon him. And he pleads with his father three times in the garden, take this cup from me. His closest friends desert him. And then in Luke's gospel, he adds this one caveat that I want to close our time with. In Luke twenty two sixty one, 61, all of this is culminating. The same passage is taking place here. And this one verse is just so impactful. So verse 60 says, but Peter said, this is his third denial. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And this verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. There was so much going on in that moment. There was so much stress that Jesus felt in that moment. His life being in the balance. And yet he intentionally made effort to make eye contact with Peter right after Peter denied him for that third time. It's as if he knew. It's as if to say, I knew you would deny me and I'm not going anywhere. It's this moment where where Peter's life is now fully unraveled as he hears the rooster crow and immediately in Jesus' kindness, he doesn't have to, but he chooses to and he makes eye contact with Peter to say, I'm not going anywhere, man. So he weeps, Peter does, weeps. And then he goes and he watches his best friend get beaten and put on a cross, naked, vulnerable, the wrath of God placed on him. He sees his limp, dead body put into a tomb. 
He sees the Roman soldier come with the stone out front, and his life seems like it's over. And you can imagine, if you're in his shoes, you can imagine that moment where you looked at your Savior, and you're like, I screwed up. You can feel the pain that Peter might feel. And then that Sunday morning came around, and you begin to hear stories of this one your best friend has risen. You go to the tomb, and it's not, uh, it's empty. You see, the, 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 it's rolled away, the stone is. And Peter's first encounter with Jesus, we find in John 21, after the weeping, after the cross, after the feeling like he betrayed his best friend. And John 21, 4 through 8, we read the story. Just as day was breaking, this is Sunday morning, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, these guys were not very good fishermen, it seems. No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. This is the very thing that Jesus did to Peter out of the gate when he told him to follow him. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, not sure why, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Typically, we kind of limit our clothing when we jump into the water. He is so overwhelmed. The last time he saw interaction with Jesus was when his eyes looked into Jesus's and after his betrayal. And he jumps into the water. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And they began to have breakfast together. And he knew the look of his Lord. And so when he realized in that moment that Jesus had risen, he ran to Jesus. He didn't put himself in timeout. He ran to Jesus. It's powerful for Peter, but it's powerful for us. I mean, we don't know this Jesus, right? Like, we don't know the depth of kindness that this Jesus offers to us. He cares for us much more than we realize. We partake in this, these communion elements, and it's screaming to us of God's care for us. I love in that Matthew passage that the, the, the shepherd will be struck. That's the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That shepherd was willing to be struck that we could go free. It's powerful. And throughout this series, my hope is that we can demystify some of the cross, and allow it to not just be theological when we use kind of the Heisman and, and talk about propitiation and atonement and all of the big words and forget the intimate encounter that God wants us to have with it. As we look at how Jesus loved Peter and Jesus loved his disciples and how Jesus therefore loves us. And this event changed the course of human history. And as we behold it, it, it can change our lives, no one has loved us like Jesus loves us. He becomes our lamb, and it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so this text in Matthew, it reminds us that this cross that we remember week in and week out, 
is a, a reminder of a greater exodus and a greater deliverance because we were more greatly enslaved to our own sin and bondage. But God, on a rescue mission, he didn't use a Moses, but he became a Moses. And he entered into our story, and he died our death. He became the lamb for you, that if you trusted in his provision, it wouldn't just be that the angel of death would, would pass by you overnight, but you could have everlasting joy with God. That's the offer of the Passover narrative for us. He is our lamb, and his kindness leads us to repentance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you. Lord, I pray through this time as we walk through this passion narrative today and over these next weeks that you blow the dust off our hearts. We can become so familiar with the gospel that we really don't know it at all. And I pray that you would wow our hearts again with wonder and delight that you would become our lamb, that you would die our death, not because we deserved it, but by grace and your kindness you eliminated everything that needed to be eliminated, that we would have access to, to you. Stir our affection this morning. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we will feast, that we can feast now, and we will feast in that day when you swallow death forever. Lord, I pray that as we behold this cross in this season, that you would deepen our confidence and our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we, um, we partake in this time of confession and communion. You can pull out the elements, but don't take them yet.